It's good that you get to tell your children that the world is was in black and white. <laughs> <laughs> I probably tried that on you at some I point. I guess that's literally a white lie. <laughs> uh, certainly getting to uh getting to tell children um i i, I often tried that with calvin zed is a role model that way you take still do that with emo that's uh that is absurd and see how long you can hold it against uh, <laughs> there was one time um me and a, when i was a senior in high school me and a few of my friends tried our best to convince a freshman that the world was flat Okay, it's not so hard. Yeah, and the freshman growth to become an NBA basketball player, I guess. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, okay, so uh, let's start with uh, Dr. Goldberg's article. Um, I think I wanted to start towards the bottom, if I recall correctly. I had a page number written down, and I think it was on page 13. <coughs> that makes sense. Uh, Okay, so let's, we'll, we'll we'll start with the um, with um, right with the description of a of a monumental shift in the way in which Western medicine approaches these issues. That Western medicine used to be exactly where halacha is, but Western medicine has moved and halacha hasn't. Uh, so the question is, it was halacha defined as having, or one way of framing the question was, halacha, did halacha actually have autonomous positions about this, or was halacha's position simply do whatever the best medical advice is. Hmm. Uh, you're going to imagine there are areas where, right, you might, let's say, you know, the people who think that you should paskin um, medical psak. So if you, right, if the best treatment 20 years ago for a particular disease was medication A and not medication B, so you can imagine your posting will tell you you must take medication A, not medication B. And 30 years later, you're posting, right, if, you know, if 30 years ago the, the psak was that you, um, you know, that the best thing for your health is to jog a mile a day, so then you'd have post kids telling you, you must jog a mile a day. And if they tell you right now that you know, jogging is obviously destructive to all the tissues of the body. And therefore, right, therefore it's usher to jog it. If you ever have a you know, desire to go anywhere, you should you know, make sure that you have a group of, uh, wait, wait, of laborers paid minimum wage to carry you from place to place in a sedan chair. Well, then that's we'll tell you, nobody will feel it as like a radical shift in halacha. Mm -hmm. Right. So the, the problem is that. Um, we somehow we didn't see uh, we didn't see non-truth telling to patients as purely a medical decision. And we saw it to some extent as a statement of value, uh, or we don't believe that currently. Right? There's, there's, there's resistance to believing that the current the current practice of the medical profession is actually a neutral therapeutic decision as opposed to a value-driven um, decision. I think that doctors think they have to tell you and without, without consideration of whether telling you is good for your health. The impression that I got was yeah. that Salaha was based on consensus. And the question is, well, once the medical consensus changes, is that halacha still binding? So, you know, it's pretty clear that the halacha was taking into account medical knowledge. So procedurally, right, you have challenge, right? You know, you have, you can talk about halacha being kavua in the Zmana Gemara, um, right? You can say that doesn't change, or, but, you know, but to say that, when was the halacha kavua, right? What, what textual evidence has anyone really cited of, any, of anyone, you know, prior to the, um, prior to the 20th century? 
taking a position about whether you should tell patients the truth about the diagnosis. Not much. I mean, we haven't seen any. <laughs> right. You know, there's some stuff debating, debating the meaning of, uh, of, of some passages in Tanakh, which maybe you can find some 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 things about you have you you do have the the sources about you know, not doing things in front of a dying person like you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to dig the grave in front of the dying person. There's no one Gemara that is Zara. Which one? Um, the one where the, the one that talks about the the non the non Jewish doctor. Yeah. Which is Fry. Um, right. I don't remember exactly where we saw it. Um, was.
Um, can you please unmute? Okay, my apologies. I don't know why. Okay, my apologies to all of you who haven't heard a word I said. Um, it was all infinitely valuable. And um, we're going to go on without, without it anyway. Uh, hopefully it won't be, it won't be hopelessly, um, hopelessly non-continuous. Basically, the conversation has been maybe, maybe I'm new to the very beginning, and then it just went off for a while. The, um, what I'm trying to argue, and uh, Tani is resisting, uh, is that the resistance to truth-telling in contemporary halacha is not grounded in, oh, we did this for thousands of years, and now you're asking us to change because of new data. It's more that we are suspicious of the basis for the change, and we don't see it as rooted as the purely medical change. But you could also argue that we just don't like change, right? That's what right? Jacob wanted to argue. Maybe we just don't like change. Um, maybe, we, right? maybe, we, <laughs> maybe we dislike change more now than we used to dislike change. Um, maybe this, this change is just is a little bit too obvious as opposed to changing medications, even though the PSAC would have changed. You know, my argument is you know, when medications change, the PSAC changes. Uh, maybe it just feels like a value-based endeavor when you talk to people as opposed to when you give when you give them the shots in the arm, which feels like a physical activity. Okay. Um, right. So Danilo says there is in fact a lot of stuff about, about truth telling. You can read the stuff in, in, Stein, in Dr. Steinberg for sure. Um, and what he says is um, that he's not interested in the in the halachic discourse, even though he is a Lamban who really normally cares about halachic discourse. So it's a very interesting needle he's trying to thread that you know, I'm interested, I want to know all the stuff, but this conversation, the, the Makara don't interest me about this issue. The Makara is about this issue, don't interest me when discussing this issue. And it sounds like he thinks the Makara about this issue get into like the different details and he's trying to discuss the issue as a whole. Is that why? I mean, he says like there, there are, there's a lot of literature collected to the question about truth telling, right? Um, the actual logic material relevant to the topic of truth telling has been analyzed quite extensively. Broadly speaking, there is a fairly circumscribed body of evidence that defines the boundaries of the conversation. Um, and the interpretation of some sources is hotly contested, but basically everyone agrees on the court R. And some, right, the question is which, which McCord are relevant, which McCord, right, which McCord apply, which, which McCord have, have more authority. Uh, but it's, a, you know, it's not like there are no condition to come in. Everyone knows that there are these, that these McCord and that you can weight the McCord differently. And he's not going to have that conversation, which is what a lucky conversation normally looks like. Right, you know, you're right, we say we're having a shear, right? So we should fight about, right? I think that, I think that this, that this, that the Malbim is more important halakhically than, you know, than the Ibn Ezra. No, I think Ibn Ezra is more important halakhically than, right, uh, than the Malbim. How do you weigh your Shalmi against the Midrash halakha, right? It's, right? We can have all those conversations. Mm -hmm. I found the Truva, Truva certainly count, uh, right? Truva by who? All of them except for the Ibn Ezra and the Malbim one. The Malbim obviously is more important than the Ibn Ezra. Um, sure. As I say, we're not getting into that conversation. Um, <coughs> yeah, I, I want to debate you, I would say, if we're talking about, you know, Parshanut, of course you're right, but halacha. <laughs> um, anyway. No, the other way around. I, I, I said, if I want to debate you, it would not be hard. It would not be hard to debate you at all, as we can see, <laughs> but I'm not going to because I'm a good person. But, but he talks to us, like, more at the end about, like, why he doesn't want to talk about these sources, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. yeah, that he doesn't believe that the sources are dispositive for, what he, for him. 
right? So that's a really amazing thing, right? If, if he spends a lot of time getting his, you know, getting his Beit Medrash cred, <laughs> uh, right? High, and it's just all true, apparently, right? He learns, you know, he really does really love learning, still <laughs> loves learning. Um, okay. Uh, what he wants to do, <laughs> what he wants to do is people are amazing, you know, like, you know, Jeremy Brown writes the Talmudology, like, you know, how he does, you know, it's a little scary, like, you know, scary how many people I know who have real jobs and still learn much more than I do. <laughs> um, but even though their job is not to learn. Well, uh, he, he does teach them, why doesn't he like what Yeah, I'm sure he does that too. Yeah. I didn't say what job, what his job was at the time when he published his article. I think he was a, he was, I think he was a doctor. Uh, he's also a doctor. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Okay, so Jeremy Brown's still an emergency physician, as far as I know. Okay. Indeed, is the, 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 what, what interests me is, right, says I want to analyze the contours of the debate, what kind of arguments are being made, and what sort of extracurricular textual commitments do they represent? What do we expect of the halakha? when we present it with modern ethical dilemmas and demand of it a fear, firm and clear response? That's a really interesting question. Mm -hmm. right, what do you, do we think the job of halakha is to resolve things that modernity sees as ethical dilemmas? Or do we think that that would be, you're missing the point if you don't understand that it's a dilemma? So the halakha is never meant to resolve ethical dilemmas. Is I don't think that's okay. That's too strong, right? So what's wrong? You know, the way say what is it? What do we? So you might say, what what is what do we expect the halacha when we present it with modern ethical dilemmas? The matter of the clear and firm response, a clear and firm response. That's what we expect. I mean, certainly some people would expect that. Yeah, I, you don't want that. Okay, yeah. right? So it's an interesting thing. <laughs> uh, I'm not saying I, I agree that that's what it should provide, but certainly, like in a lot of communities, that's what it's expected. Oh, definitely. <laughs> Um, I think it's a facetious question. So it's like a, not facetious, it's a leading question because it's already refuting mm -hmm. a really large model. The obvious answer is it depends on the topic. If the question, the modern ethical question, should I randomly murder my neighbors? Uh, it does, in fact, present us a clear answer. That's not ethical dilemma. That's right. That's it might be. Maybe you really think your neighbor deserves to be murdered because he's a really bad person. <laughs> my point I mean, is there are certain topics on which the halacha speaks very, very strongly. Um, and there are certain topics he speaks much less strongly. So it's really, that's the obvious answer. So this is already trying to frame it as a sharp contrast. So that way, and we're speaking about it in a topic where Halakha does not present a firm answer. It lets us get like a larger moral framework. It's kind of a leading question to try to get yeah. us into his framework. Okay. Let's take it right then. You know, there's the firm statement, right? That, right, that any, these, that, they said, that any foray into Jewish ethics that is not fundamentally grounded in the essential substance of our Halakhic Masorah can be only marginally connected to Judaism. Okay. You know, that's uh, that is clearly somebody who's been, you know, who's lived in a, in a rough world, right? Where halacha is the center of everything. And if you can't, right, and I don't care how much Zohar you know, right, it's not only marginally connected to Judaism, right? It has to be part of the halachic discourse of Yosha, of of Okay, let's uh, let's assume that's true. But the last sentence, right? How do we read the last? Fine. I believe the issue of truth telling inevitably subject touches on subjects that, in one sense, are not halachic. But at the same time, are fundamental to the identities and internal dynamics of, in, of different halakhic communities. The scope of authority, the balance between autonomy and paternalism, and the tension between truth and power. So, what does he mean by saying these are? Last, I mean, the, last, the last sentence of the first uh, of uh, uh, of the the last paragraph that finishes on page ten. Right, the last sentence is right. 
touches on subjects that in one sense are not halachic, but at the same time are fundamental to the identities and internal dynamics of different halachic communities. Ismail, what do you want to say? No, I mean, I think he's, he's saying basically that, um, right, it's not a halachic issue to ask how much, um, like, authority we should give to, um, like, a doctor. That's what he's arguing, even though obviously there are people who disagree with that. But he um, nonetheless understands that this is absolutely essential to how communities self-define, um, right? Like, like um, you know, like the way that like um, Haredi communities relate to authorities is going to be very different, especially the way that Hasidic communities relate to the idea that like one person can make decisions for everybody else. It's also going to be very different. So like these. Things are um, like absolute, like these, these um, like tensions are absolutely essential to the way that halakhic communities self-define, even if he thinks they're not straightforward halakhic issues. So it's not a machloket in halakha as to how, as to what the relationship is between autonomy and paternalism generally. That's a pre-halakhic issue, mm-hmm. um, right? That's right. It's interesting, right? It's not halakhic. It's not halakhic. I wouldn't even say it's meta-halakhic. It's pre-halakhic or post-halakhic. Uh, <laughs> I don't think so. I think you paskin based on it as opposed to you derive it based on how you paskin. I think that's his argument. I mean, he, are, he really wants there to be like a realm of halacha and a realm of values, um, right? Like he like, like talks at the end about how much he dislikes all his positivism, right? He wants there to be a realm of values. He wants those values to like be very important to the way halacha is decided, even if they're not halacha. And he also wants them to stem from halacha. Does he? Stem from halacha? Oh, he said that if it's not based on you know, halayat avayat rabba, it's only tangentially related to Judaism. <laughs> Any, any foray into Jewish ethics that is not fundamentally grounded in that realm, yeah. right? So that so now the question is, but what does he mean? <laughs> what does he mean by grounded in in that realm, right? So these issues are only in one sense in halachic, but they're fundamental to identity. So maybe they count, right? Maybe if you're dealing with these issues, you're still grounded. Grounded in what? In the fundamental stuff of the Masoret. Stuff. Right. He says, right, the the essential substance of a halachic Masoret. It's hard to argue about what the central substance of our lucky Masorah is. But, <laughs> uh, right, you know, yeah. We're just using words. I, I think that there's a, I think there's a lot of tension here because he wants to be working in, in the universe mm-hmm. of Lachik Man as he understands it. And at the same time, he wants to acknowledge that there are issues that define Halachic communities, which are not themselves Halacha. Mm-hmm. But what are they then? And why would they matter? Why shouldn't we just be doing Halacha? Is halacha, why, why should halacha be different based on these prior commitments? And yet it seems I don't think it he's is. saying that halacha is different. Yeah. Sounds like he's saying halacha is halacha, and there are things that are not halacha that are also really important. And will different communities paskin differently on these issues because of their prior commitments? Not necessarily. Uh, I mean, his whole argument in this, in this article is going to be that yes, they will, right? Mm-hmm. About I mean, this issue specifically. He's arguing that these issues are not halachic. They're not halachic in one sense. Right, he's like very careful, right? The issue of truth telling inevitably touches on subjects that, in one sense, are not halachic, but in the other sense, are right. That seems like a reasonable diuk. That if, right, if it says in one sense are halachic, then the other half of it. They're related to halacha. They're related to halacha. In the same way, that has to be grounded in halacha. Uh huh. But it's not like halacha in the narrow sense. Hmm. Okay. Let's see. Let's see. Um, right. He has three kinds of the right. The, so the different communities Brahmachal identifies these with Manorosax, Haredi, Hasidic, right? Is there is scope of authority, balance between autonomy and paternalism, and tension between truth and power. The last one is really the biggest thing, I think. Tension between truth and power. Like where did that come? Where did that come from? 
Why are we doing, where, you know, is that really the issue? Mm -hmm. Truth and power, where is power a function in, in truth telling by doctors and patients? Doctors have power. So that's a very, right, that's already, that already puts you on one side of the conversation if you think of that, that as the power mm -hmm. as a major factor there. I, mean, I think he's saying that this conversation is also related to a broader conversation about truth and power. Which is what, like, what would be an example of a conversation like that? Like government withholding information from its citizens. Aha. Uh -huh. So that's a big jump to say that this, right? Because you might just think this is a narrow PSOC issue. Should doc doctors have to do what's best for their patients? He doesn't think that. He doesn't think, right? So I'm saying, right? <laughs> Framing this as a question about, tr about truth and power, where it means that he thinks that those people who claim that they're engaging in a simple halakhic decision based on, based on the best interests of the patient are not, in fact, doing so. What they're doing yeah. is... I mean, he then justifies them, of course, yes. Yeah, okay, right? That's, that's, one of the, that's a big claim, right? Because you could just deny it up front. No, there's nothing to do with tension and truth and power. Power is not a consideration at all, mm -hmm. uh, right? Putting in that question is already, right? It means you've already eaten the fruit in the Garden of Eden. Now we're just going to figure out what you do. You know, now you still get to make decisions. I mean, presumably yeah. he wrote this essay after already knowing what his own position was. Uh, could be. <laughs> uh, I, I would be strongly inclined to say that he already knew what he was going to say when he started writing. Uh, okay, I think that's fair. I think there are ways, though, that he's not, he has a rough idea of his position, but he's also, like, saying this is a field that has, that there are ways that it does have a strong history, there are ways that it barely exists, and so I think partly he's, partly the thesis of this is to just start that discussion, so he doesn't need to have that certainty. Okay, that could be, I, 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 think that, I think there's yeah. a lack of naivete, which is really like, you know, that once yeah. you acknowledge that lack of naivete, you think that power is a factor, you're already in a different conversation than the conversation which doesn't consider power as a factor. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing that happens as to whether your conversation about whether teachers should tell students to tattle considers power or not. Right? So, mm -hmm. right, some Chubut, right, Rav Wozner, doesn't consider power. Right? It's not a factor that teachers have power, maybe they shouldn't. Whereas Rav Moshe does, I think. Right, so I think it's a different conversation already. Okay, so then he, right, he has a line which I think you know, ties in with me on uh, on page twelve, where he says, "More recently, doctors Alan Jotkowitz and Shimon Glick have, by my assessment, more directly countered the conventional position held by recent halakhic literature, right, as opposed to the traditional position." I think that's very nicely. I, I would agree with that description. The conventional position held by recent uh, held by recent yeah. halakhic literature. Um, I've now been in touch with both Dr. Jotkowitz and Dr. Glick about other stories. That's a whole. You know, so I'm happy to have personal. Uh, relationship because um because they published together because um when i when we were, we were talking about moving respirators earlier earlier this year mm. so a lot of this was built on a uh which got bowed somehow between edition one and edition two of uh, uh like different pieces that got moved around and it was very hard to figure out but it then turned out that two was written to dr glick so I so I asked him to. to he, had the original he had the original. So I got a. Uh, so most of it was published. His the answer was published in uh, in a journal called in Asia, I think. But the question that Dr. Glick wrote to him had never been published. So I got Dr. Glick. Uh, he was very nice, kind of him, and he went up and he, and he found the original file with the question. So I think I was the first one to to publish the question, which was an answer, which made a difference in understanding what the answer was. Yeah. Uh, and then Dr. Jacques published something based on the same thing. Um, okay. Um, right. So they claim, so Dr. Jacques and Glake have two claims. One is they claim that 
um, contemporary uh, contemporary studies don't demonstrate that med medical medical risk that truth telling is a medical risk. Right? So the quote of Dr. Blake, Blake is responding that it doesn't have to be a statistically cognizable risk, right? As long as there's any risk, um, right? So why would we? If and if Alecha used to say there's a risk, and now you say there's no risk, so what, right? So Alecha, you haven't disproven it, uh, right? And that's a, that's a fair thing, and I often am very skeptical. Of, um, of how exactly you get the data, you know, how strong is the data? And I can certainly see a reasonable person saying there's, you know, we have a we have a prior tradition that creates a chazaka. If you haven't had enough to create a race on the chazaka, you just haven't proven it. Okay, so let's go, let's stick with what our existing position has already been Paskin. Not unreasonable. The um, experimental ethics is, is a challenge in itself. Uh, Dr. Baruch Brody, uh, in his marvelous book, um, Taking Issue, um, has a Zichron Lebracha. Has he, he actually engaged um, like it was in, in experimental bioethics? Like he would try to create situations which would test certain test certain hypotheses, and you get amazing results that are annoying to everybody. Um, like for example, like do do the people are the people who you give your healthcare proxy to better at better at deciding the way you would than random people. And if it turns out not, so then the basis for the proxy can't be. I want my wishes to be. I want my. I want my wishes to be carried out. Um, so that's, you know, the question about whether, what you know, questions about whether uh, what the effects would be of allowing people in poor nations to sell their organs, mm -hmm. um, as, as opposed to having the international treaty we have we have against uh, right, which bans the sale of, the sale of organs for transplant. Uh, right, all sorts of. It's really, it's really, it's really, it's very cool. It's very cool to read, you know. But in the, in the absence of carefully designed experiments, um, studies show that studies have shown. That's about it. <laughs> um, okay. Um, yeah. yeah, I guess I do have a question. Just to uh, like question these findings, I think we're saying that in the Talmud times, people found that telling patients their medical information. They don't know about the Talmud. We don't say no, but didn't he said they said they're quoting a study that, um, that says that telling uh, patients their medical information won't harm their health. That's true, but we don't have any, we don't have evidence in the Talmud that it would. We but have. Didn't like, we say that it used to be halakhically that? Yeah, in the nineteen sixties. Right in the nineteen sixties. Okay, fine. So not in the Talmud. Right. That's right, right. Whether there's yeah. any, all the Talmudic evidence is highly disputed. So yeah, in the nineteen sixties, right, and then now they they have one study that shows that it doesn't. One study? Or maybe multiple studies. Right. Yeah. Maybe so, every study that's been done since 1990 shows it. Right. But it seems like if halakhically in the 1960s, yeah. the decision was that we shouldn't tell patients right. um, their, you know, their diagnosis, then like, it seems like, yeah, it seems like they're basically, they're, for me at least, there seems like there still would be potentially a reason not to tell people. Okay, so you have, a, on the situation. you have a conservative right now. What? Right, that's it. That, that is Rabbi Leich's position. Um, although I think Rabbi Leich would, would at some point, you know, if there were if there were really well-designed studies, I think he would have to take them into account, but he would likely be very skeptical mm. of the possibility that the studies are really are really well done. Because uh, you know, it's hard to, like, what's the control? Yeah, you, know, you have to have like you know, really like terribly that twenty patients with identical diagnosis, and you tell ten of them you don't, you don't, you're, yeah. you don't tell ten of them you control for all the family family dynamic situations, prior philosophic commitments. It's gonna be hard to get a study larger. Kind of, 
like uh, Blake often reaches conclusions that I disagree with. I like his methodology. <laughs> I I should say yeah, I uh, I I love Roy Blake uh, personally mm -hmm. as one of the um, one of just like the joys of my joys of my time at Wadi was the opportunity to yell at him extensively, <laughs> uh, which I did very very often, uh, very very often. For, Even if you disagree with him. Yeah. I disagree with him on many, many things, and I enjoy really enjoyed yelling at him, uh, yelling about it. Um, he got along well with his grandkids when they were Hopkins. Okay. <laughs> uh, good. Oh, yeah. Right. Those are those are Moshe's, uh, Moshe Blake's children, I assume. Yeah. Uh, any case, I, I got along with his son, with his son too, uh, and usually, after you know two to three hours, uh, it would turn out that our positions were not as distant as they had seemed at the outset. <laughs> Um, but it took it took a long time to move them, and uh, it's some very harsh rhetoric on occasion. Yeah. Uh, but it was great. It was it was you know, like, like it was very 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 few teachers who could um, you know, not only understand whatever field they wanted to talk about, but usually knew it better. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, but you know he was his his yeah. doctors in philosophy. He learned medical ethics because he because his shul is across from Mount Sinai. And then he got a job with teaching Jewish law in Cardozo for a semester and said, this is fun, and became a law professor. It's just an amazingly wonderful mind. Uh, and fun, you know, and, and willing to be teased, which is a very big deal for me. Yeah. Uh, very willing to be teased. Uh, and you know, an amazing time. Once in my life, I knew something he did. It's very, very exciting to me. Once that when I once knew something he did. It's a great joy. Without Barilan, after Barilan, you know, the, 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 the game is the game is a different game. What do you want to say, Jay? So yeah, but I'll say. To me, then, if if we're saying like the studies are poorly designed, like there's still other factors. Like to me, as someone who has a chronic illness, which is not the same case as this, but to me, that there's importance in having trust in the patient-doctor relationship, mm -hmm. and with that. For myself, I would want to be told information because you because trust for you means the doctor is telling you the truth. Yes. As opposed to in a different generation, trust meant the doctor is doing what's best for you. Right. And for me, I have the opposite. I have no trust in any of my doctors. So if they didn't tell me the truth, <laughs> as far as I can throw them to tell me the right thing to do. Right. So these are these, right. these are these are big. Do you assume the doctors are ethical? Do you assume that doctors are always in, acting in your best in your best interest? So you right. So you think the only way to know that doctors are acting in your best interest is if they're transparent with you. Otherwise, they're preserving power. Yeah. And, okay. Maybe we should tell this story. Okay. Yeah. What I was getting at with trust is, I'm not gonna agree with everything my doctors tell me. Like, I had an endocrinologist for like almost 20 years and then she closed her practice. And so I have a new endocrinologist who just, his input is valuable, um, but there are ways I know my body and my diabetes better than he does. And so trust isn't necessarily getting the most accurate information, but being given the information, being empowered to make my own decisions. Right, so I think a big part of trust for you and for most modern people is trusting that people will not invade the sphere in which you get to make decisions. Mm -hmm. Because if people yeah. right, don't do that, then you suspect them of taking power and being more interested in power mm -hmm. than, in, right, than in helping you. 
which is yeah. true in many cases. I mean, I think like we're, we're deliberately like always choosing cases that have actual impact on the patient, but doctors routinely make decisions that are in their own best interests, which mm -hmm. have no impact on the patient, right? Like doctors will schedule medical procedures for their own convenience, right? Mm -hmm. um, like doctors will schedule like all of their surgeries are gonna be on this day, even though that has nothing to do with the patient's consideration. Sometimes they'll lie to the patient and tell them that actually it really needs to be on that day in order mm -hmm. for their own convenience. It doesn't necessarily affect the patient's health at all, but it is like one of those things that I think touches on like, like, like the doctor's obligation to tell you the truth versus the way that they can exercise power over you by um, essentially um, like holding the key to your health, um, which they control. Okay, so this is a, right, I think that that is a, um, I think that's a, you know, that's, in the same ways we talked about in the in the school thing, right? The question, you know, there's a lot of things that depends on what your fundamental default setting is, mm -hmm. and and when you lose the, yeah, my my argument is that once you lose that trust, then it is almost always counterproductive to act as if you still had it. Mm -hmm. And so the same truth is true in medicine as if it's teachers, right? If if doctors walk in on the assumption that their patients will think that they are always, and therefore they they withhold information in the belief that it would be better for their patients not to know it. What they mostly they do, the patient will probably find out anyway, because uh, the patient will go get a second opinion, and right, or ask their cousin or their sister or whatever, right, whatever doctor they have conveniently mm -hmm. does that. Does that make sense? And so, right, so you very, very, um, right. Black told me this um, years ago. Sorry about um, when I asked, I asked him, is there still halacha vein morin cane nowadays? Hmm. Is that still a relevant category? And so he told me a story of somebody who came to him and said, you know, really, before, you know, before my parent died, I never, you know, I, I didn't come to shul or put on tefillin. But obviously, for my parents' wishes, um, yeah, I've been doing that now. And it's a leap year, and I've been doing it for 11 months. And I want to know, is, should I do it for 11 months or should I do it for 12 months? And mm -hmm. I said, well, you know, of course, the halacha is 11 months. But if I told him 12 months, mm. he puts on tefillin before he comes to shul for an extra month. So I said 12 months. <laughs> and, and then he went down the block and asked the Amarids at the other shul. And the Amarids told him, he looked who got his little art scroll book, it's a little anachronistic. And it said 11 months. And he said 11 months. And they looked at me and he said, and I was the Amarids. And that was right. His point was, you know, that Alchemy Marin Kane doesn't work. Mm. You can't have Alchemy Marin Kane in, the, in, right, in, um, in an age where, where, where everyone, everyone has all the options available. Right. I mean, in an age where people are looking to exercise those options. <laughs> yeah, and they can have access, right? Halakha and Morin Kane is in the Gemara. How can you pass in Halakha and Morin Kane when it's in the Gemara? Anyone can read it. The answer is not everybody can read the Gemara. But now, every Halakha and Morin Kane is beamed out to by 40,000 people in the Duff. Yeah. <laughs> right? You pull in Google, right? The answer is, this is the Halakha, but you, but we're not supposed to tell you, right? That's what it comes up with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the, the medical case like yeah. in psychology like this sort of came up at the beginning of the course when like we were talking about the case in the Gemara that whether or not a patient can decide um like on a fast day on Yom Kippur right if the patient sounds, thinks yes. that they can eat and then the doctor thinks eat. that they shouldn't eat then they can eat right so and I think it's like connected sort of to Jacob's point that like what if you feel like you know better than the doctor that you need something and then the doctor thinks that you don't need that thing and like and now it connects to my story that i already told most of the class here which is like one time i thought i needed an iv because i thought oh i'm dehydrated because i'm taking antibiotics 
and like I'm just dehydrated and I feel sick. And then since I didn't have health insurance at the time, I was really scared because I was like, oh shoot, now I have to pay like a lot of money for this. And I was paying for the doctor's visit out of pocket, like $100 or something like that to go to a doctor for something connected to like strep throat or something like that. And then, so I told my doctor this, I was like, yeah, like I feel really dehydrated and like taking antibiotics that like a doctor I know prescribed me uh that's like without going to an appointment and without doing any tests i just since i i want i guess i wanted to save money originally so i just like went to my friend that's a, somebody i know that's a doctor mm-hmm. and then it turned out it wasn't really working so i thought okay probably i should have gone to a doctor in the first place okay it's like more details of the story but basically in the end i went to the doctor i paid and i was like i'm really dehydrated um and i think i need an iv but i told her that i don't have like that i'm paying out of pocket so she's like oh yeah uh, IVs are really expensive and like it's just like not worth it for you so like just don't do it basically in my head I still thought I needed it and then because of that I got like very very anxious and I also have anxiety so I started like I started like really worrying I was like okay I probably should have gotten an IV and then basically I had like a panic attack and I started throwing up in the middle of a supermarket like nonstop. I thought I was dizzy. I thought I was going to faint. I like couldn't recognize people anymore. Like the, the fire department, like ambulance people came and I thought the, the fireman was a doctor. Maybe I was like, are you a doctor? I couldn't tell. And it was, it took me a long time to get over it, but eventually like I, I didn't completely like die of like panic attack, but I was like, basically like it was really bad. And I ended up in the emergency room. So that's a situation where like the doctor, maybe that my doctor should have been smarter and Mm -hmm. more psychologically aware that like oh this patient thinks that she needs an IV so why am I telling her that it's too expensive and also it's a lesson for me I should never bring up money again with doctors because Mm -hmm. that's not really part of their job to like discuss like finances so that's no okay okay I I I appreciate the moral whether you bring up money with doctors is a wholly separate conversation yeah it's just not I mean nowadays the way that in Boston the way the healthcare system works like the people that do the finances are not the doctors. It's like the, yes. they're like it's like a whole different department if you want yeah. to talk about finance. So I made a mistake a couple of times, but okay, sure. okay, yeah. okay. So where we are then? Um, going, right. So here's Dr. Goldberg on the bottom of page thirteen has I think a uh, a really a really valuable um, paragraph, right, where he says. Heaven for, not heaven forbid, because I rather dismiss or disparage intricate allophic analysis of rabbinic source material, but because in this case, his conclusions seem so intuitively unsatisfactory. So that's a, that's a really interesting line. His conclusions seem so intuitively unsatisfactory. Mm-hmm. Uh, I get this from a lot of doctors, by the way, yeah. that um, there are huge tomes of medical halacha, and they all read them, and then emerge saying that doesn't sound right and go do what they want and then but are really at least feel themselves to be extremely eager for halachic guidance that they would follow but they right but the books of medical halacha seem to them to be in the wrong universe even though they they enjoy reading them and i suspect this is true in all the other fields also it's just the doctors we have more doctors who are um genuinely interested in in philosophy than we have accountants. Uh, but I suspect if we wrote accounting ethics, they might have the same issue, I don't know. Uh, 
I'm not sure how, how many people find business that find halachic business ethics tremendously relevant to their job to their to the way they do business either. I don't know. For better or for worse. I don't know, but I know that you know. There's only one book about legal ethics, really, um, and I don't know how. You know, basically, it says don't be a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's very, it's very, it's very, very bright. It's a very, very big book, and it's, there are so many things you can't do at the end of it. Probably uh, that the only solution is to go be a law professor. Um, <laughs> but um, isn't that with major? Being a law professor? Yeah, you're ten lawyers. Ah, it's an interesting question. <laughs> <laughs> but they could all be professors. So it's like you're not determining ah, the choices. That's okay. <laughs> as long as you live in an exclusively academic academic environment, you're fine. You, like you know, I think it might be you know, there's something that might might be much to be a legal aid lawyer. Uh, might be. I don't know. I never been discussing that explicitly. Uh, it's a very big book. <laughs> uh, but who knows, you know, no one has bothered to write a book you know, arguing with it yet, so who knows if it's true or not. Uh, it's just a very big book. Uh, but, you know, when you tell people who are engaged in a profession that the things they do every day are usher, you just don't get very far. And you say, okay, in economy, right? You, know, it's not, you just have to write the book that says your profession is usher. Um, but, um, but doctors, generally, we encourage people to be doctors. Yeah. And if we encourage people to be doctors, so then it's uh, right. Then it's hard to tell them that everything. I, I know this, it's hard to tell them that they're killing people, which is, you know when they when they turn off machines, which they do every day, and they yeah. are right. That's a big thing. Uh, Russia Weiss talks about this to some extent. And I talked about it uh, when I was when I was trying to you know it was very hard when I was writing the, the about the coronavirus stuff. Like you know, that there's what I would have thought, and what I would have thought was not was not viable for people actually engaged in emergency room medicine. So I could have said, nope, from doctors can't be in the emergency room during this time of pandemic, because you're gonna end up being forced to do things that I think are receiving and it's your go Or I could say, you know what, that's the way I think, that's the way if I were starting the system from scratch, that's what I would have passed. And it's not impossible to run an emergency room that way. It's just impossible to participate in a pluralistic emergency room that way. But seeing as that's not what's, seeing as the result of my PSAC would be that doctors could not carry their profession, I need to come up with a different solution mm -hmm. that is right, that, yeah, that I still think is plausible halakha and let them do that. But it's a very hard thing because I have my shitos. I mean, I don't think he's necessarily saying that because the conclusions are unsatisfactory, the halakhic, the intricate halakhic analysis is wrong. He's saying that that's, it makes it more interesting for doctors to discuss. Um, no, it doesn't make it interesting to discuss, right? It is right. The discussion starts. The discussion starts after that, because they feel that 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 the, the, the first base conversation yielded a result that was intuitively satisfactory, unsatisfactory. They went through all that and they read the book, which tell, right they read it and it tells them exactly what the outcome is, and they're convinced that that's that if they were just doing the reading the makara, that's what they would say. But it's not right. Mm -hmm. Right, they went yeah. through that process, and it's intuitively unsatisfactory. Mm -hmm. Now, why is it? It could be intuitively unsatisfactory in principle; like it doesn't sound right, or it could be, which is what the case I'm talking about. That it's just it's intuitively unsatisfactory because it means I can't do the job that I love. And now you can say, though, you know, I talk sometimes about the the you know the gayest candidate who was a celebrity journalist and enjoyed being a celebrity journalist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I said, okay, how do you plan to keep the Chaslash Nahar and Rechilos? 
Mm-hmm. It's not investigative journalism, you know, public interest journalism, it's celebrity journalism. And I think that was a great question. Yeah. Uh, you know, but it but it wasn't imaginable to him for good reason. Like he thought what he was doing was good things, right? He didn't engage in you know, in the negative tearing down of people. And so he yeah. thought that was that, that and and he learned from things. I learned a lot from uh, in the in the book, which I should bring in copies again. Right? And mm-hmm. so one of the things with one of the one of the journalists who wrote there talked, you know, taught me about community journalism, which I had never. I was only interested in investigative journalism. But community journalism is just presenting the community's self-image to itself. Yeah, that's a different task, right? Just so the community can understand mm-hmm. what it is and how to. Right? And yeah. I, I hadn't appreciated that at all. It doesn't have the head to investigative journalism. It's not you're not saving lives. You're not preventing corruption. It's pretty boring to do, unless you like that sort of thing. Yeah, and it was all it's all interesting. It's all a different kind of different kind. Yeah, it was a different kind of writing, and it plays a role in the social fabric of the community. Yeah. Um, but I know in, in the, the my father used to love talking about the newspaper in in uh, in the town where we had a summer home, which would report things like you know Mrs. Rosenberg went to visit her sister. Uh, right. her, her sister Terry, two towns over, on the on the on the way, she saw t- you know, she saw two deer, uh, right? And people just write their ways in, you know. But it was you know, it's a way of thanking the community. <laughs> Trying to get you know, so is that important? No. College newspapers are anything like college newspapers are usually a little bit more edgier. Yeah, uh, they, they, there's there's a newspaper in the in the Jewish link of New Jersey. Usually in New Jersey to some like, extent. Yeshiva Noam third graders learn about science. Yes. <laughs> it's like, wow, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> were we on like the front page of like some Boston Jewish newspaper at some point, small children? I feel like um, yes, you probably were. For from the Hebrew Academy, probably. Yes, um, yes because there was there was an insert in the Globe, wasn't there? I don't know. Was, there was an insert in some in some newspaper. There's definitely a picture of us as like five-year-olds. Uh, you. I, you know, I, I, I should, as once again, I had failed, probably make everyone stay together at the end. We can take a picture and I can put it on Facebook and some of Amy Rush fellows, right? That's what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? That was about how old people know. Yeah. But, so read the summary. Do you, do you think the problem that the doctors are having here intuitively is that, um, that they think that Halakha would tell them that what they're doing is usher and that they're not allowed to share information? Or do you think that it's just a clash of... Um, uh, like intuitions on what the ethical thing to do when you're professional. Well, so let's read what he says, right? What he says is that he says that the, that I think he says the description of reality is wrong, right? That the cat that mm-hmm. right that the chaotic structure of healthcare delivery, the contemporary downsizing of physician privilege and authority, and the way in which health and disease play out in real time with real people, all make many halachic discussions of truth telling seem downright anachronistic, right? Yeah. The the basic assumptions seem fundamentally off and and he says the way in which people justify sharing information pragmatically. But this is a big thing, right? People explain why it's okay to share this information, even though it should be usher, because it accomplishes X. But that's not how people experience it. They experience it that this is just the nature of the profession. So I think that's where you get an ethical um, shifts. As God-fearing Jews, we do not dare suggest that a second of halacha is outdated. Okay, I don't know why. Uh, yet, yet we wonder if there is some way to more fundamentally update. So, okay, this is just, you know, I'm not sure there's more than terminology here. I always say it's not outdated, but we want to update it. Uh, so it's downdated. That's what it is. I think it's interesting is that the Chelchat Yaakov really understood this very well. It was very clear that he gave a lot of deference to saying it's the nature of my profession to not tell people things. 
and he only forced him to tell something someone something in the situation where it was very extreme in his view. Yeah, and, well, we can also say that the Chalkos Yaakov really gives it, you know, he's just deferring to the norms of medical practice, right. and maybe the Chalkos Yaakov would defer to the norms just as much the other way now. I did. He probably would. That's my point. Okay. Yes, also, I think today the medical like profession in America, the custom is, at least this is what they did for my grandmother and for me for certain things, which is they tell you in stages, like let's say you have some diagnosis, like they won't tell you like all at once usually. Mm-hmm. They'll tell you like the first appointment, they'll tell you like a little bit and then the next wow. appointment they'll tell you a little more. That way it won't be like come as a shock. Okay, that's, re- that's, whatever, that's a reasonable way of doing it. Um, but let's, I want to move away from the specific issue of truth telling and into the mm-hmm. broader question of how he's thinking about halacha. Right. right. So he's thinking about, uh, about halacha and he said, look, halacha has to relate to, halacha can't impose abstractions mm-hmm. on other people's experience if those yeah. abstractions don't seem true to their own experience. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> all right. That, all right. That's what he says, right? That this is not. Yeah. I look at the talk, and the talk tells me that you know the, the doctors reach a decision, the doctors convey the decision, right? And that's not what really happens. What really happens is lots and lots and lots and lots of separate factors going on, and so that I think is where the intuitively unsatisfactory things happen. It's not really the conclusion is necessarily because you can rationalize the conclusion by saying at the end of the day, do what's best for the patient. Yeah. But the description of what is happening is wrong. Mm-hmm. Not really saying that halacha can't do this. Right. I I don't. Yeah, I think you're saying that like, if there is a way to apply halacha such that it is not intuitively unsatisfactory, that would be better. Right. That's but as he calls that an update. Mm-hmm. Imagine if yeah. somebody were asking. Is not a bit. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, imagine if somebody if if somebody paskins you know, for scientists. Um, on the basis of an understanding of physics from 1920. So you can find all sorts of jury rigged ways to make the outcome of what the science should do in the lab right. But if you don't have quantum mechanics, right, right, if you're if you're passing based on, if you're passing based on a, a fundamentally Newtonian view of the world, right, everything has a cause, everything is determined. All right, and within that frame of the world, you can get to all the results you would get, right, if you believed in quantum mechanics. But you're still fundamentally approaching the world as if as deterministic. That just I wouldn't mean, work. Determinism of quantum okay, fine. We get all right. Okay, <laughs> so we get to that. It's fundamental. I understand that. Okay, right. So I, all right, that was already. A, let's suppose that you had a, you had a Copenhagen vision of quantum mechanics, right? What is a co- it's really undetermined. Okay, fine. <laughs> You're proving your point. Yeah, well, I'm trying to talk to Tani. Specifically. That's yeah, right, yeah. Right, right. Whatever the imagine, right? Oh, it's nice, but easier example. Imagine you have a pre-genetic notion of biology, mm-hmm. right? And then, right, and you can get all the same outcomes, but you had the but to get the outcomes, you're you're still not relating to what biologists are, are doing or thinking, right? They're they're working in a world of genetics. So if Halakha doesn't, if Halakha deals with all the issues of heredity, even if you can make the outcomes come out right, but it deals with all the questions of heredity without without believing in genes, it's just not, it's going to feel quite, downright outdated. Mm-hmm. Right? Even if all the results are fine. And you know, and as somebody asking questions about, you know, about the Halakha of heredity, uh, whichever, whichever it may be, right? It could be right, human heredity, could be, right, could be fruit fly heredity, whatever it is, right? For someone to paskin based on presumptions that about the way in which in which traits are transmitted that aren't genetic will just feel 
off. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, now then he makes right, he makes a big claim, uh, which I think is very yes, from. Do doctors actually do something different now, or do we just think about what they do differently? We think about what they do differently, and you can have. Is that an important distinction? Like because doctors presumably always guessed, and we always had this idea that there were better doctors yeah. and worse doctors, right? So everybody understood that there was some guessing involved, right? So are doctors actually doing something different, or are we just no. understanding the, the like understanding it in more more in terms of like you know uncertainty than we did? I think that's the same thing. We had, you know, people let's say cattle cultivators, right? Always bred animals, right, to have traits. They did that before. The, they did before. They did that before they were genetics. Mm -hmm. Right, but, but like, but like, there are other professions where, like, where like the actual nature of the job has changed. Right. I don't think right. that's that's not what we're talking about here. I don't think it's the actual nature of the job. I think it's the the frame that you put on your own experience. Is that right? That's that's what that's, that's right. It's the frame you put on your right. The way in which the people doing it relate to what they're doing does not correspond to the abstractions. So we're not talking about like like the difference between a farmer's job, right? hundred yeah. years ago, a farmer's job today is fundamentally about like the equipment they're using, right? Yeah. So you think we're fundamentally yeah. talking about the way that they the, think about it. The way that they think about it. Yeah, I think I don't I don't think it's like we have we have sharper scalpels, and the Gemara assumes that you can't right that you can't draw out a you can't draw this thing out with it because the Gemara assumes you couldn't get scalpels that time. I don't I don't think that's it. I think it's like what you think you're doing. Yes, sir. Putting, I would probably put psychiatry in a different place that's because there are ways that has drastically changed and there are all types of other issues that come up with that I, i'd argue but that's a, that's a separate okay we could talk i mean we could talk about that that would be you know we can talk about it tomorrow afternoon if you want right but those yeah. are psychiatry is an interesting example of, you know <laughs> where, where there were psychology uh, but so what, you know, how many paradigm shifts can occur and how, and how rapidly yes and how, you, and how you deal with that right? that's a fair that's your question. And you know, to be perfectly, you know, you know, to be upfront, right? Like I say I, I always you know, claim that the modern orthodox psak should be more skeptical of science than than Haredi Psak, not less. Mm -hmm. Um that I my argument is that Haredi Psak assumes right Haredi Psak can basically funk, not Rosh Weiss, but most Haredi Psakim <laughs> um function with there's a realm of halacha, there's a realm of science. The first question is to determine whether this is a realm of halacha or this is a realm of science. If it's a realm of science, then we just accept the authority of the greatest scientists, because what rights do we have to evaluate it? Whereas I, my argument is that monorthodox poskim like Rabbi Bleich, um, you know, with my teacher, is mm -hmm. like, you're supposed to know enough science to mm -hmm. right, to question the scientific consensus, and the halacha shouldn't necessarily follow it. So this is one of the I guess one of the, the ways in which I think monorthodox psak is against most people should be against most people's intuitions of what the difference should be. Um, there will also, be yeah. it's also binary. Like there are a lot of Haredim that are also scientists. That's know? correct. Sure. That's correct. But the postgim yeah. generally don't function that way. Yeah. Uh, right. But the postgim right. generally say you should accept the authority in that field, and right. I I am. Uh, so I think. Yeah. Sorry, like back to the question of like what he exactly talked about in terms of change. I think mm -hmm. he does muddy the waters later on because he does talk about right the difference between like a paradigm in which you have one doctor who tends to your entire life, um, right, and who like knows you and treats you consistently, like from cradle to grave, versus like nowadays mm -hmm. where you have many doctors, none of whom yes. stay for more than a few years, right. So he isn't just talking about changes in the way we think about medicine, but also well, changes about the way that doctors practically treat patients to some extent. I think. But it does get to the framing and how of the experience because it, it, to me, I think about it. I mean, I think there are other factors, but I think about it in terms of 
trust in the relationship. Not like that is a. I, mean, I would think that would be directly related to how long you've known the doctor for. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's a, I mean, I think that's a, that, and whether you see the doctor is treating Ted Kapschuk's book, The Web That Has No Weaver, which I'm happy to recommend, which is about, which was the introduction of, of, of Eastern medicine okay. into normal medical discourse. He's a professor, he's a professor at Harvard Medical School, or some placebos. Does he have a son named Gabe? He does have a son named Gabe. On Hopkins. Ah, okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, with my student again. Uh, mm -hmm. And Ted Dobbins in the in in the uh, in the Trauma Street uh, show. Um, so, but so I read, I read I read his book before I knew him, and I thought and it had a had a very powerful impact on me. But one of the things he points out is whether is that Western medicine generally treats the condition, and Eastern medicine treats the patient. And that's a fundamental shift mm -hmm. in right in how you in the relationship in the relationship between doctors and patients. Yes. You treat the patient. You're trying to treat it holistically, right? What is yeah. it, right? What is it likely that this patient's body, right, based on their history, whereas mostly we we decide, oh, this is a case of X, and here's and then we look. There's a book, and the book tells you what the treatment for X is, mm -hmm. and that treatment is not adapted except according to specific, right? You, right? Because we right, we have abstract abstracted medicine, and so his argument is whether it's true or not. I couldn't tell you about Eastern right, is that is that Eastern medicine was not that way, and so when I when I teach the Ram, I point out like the Ramams fascinatingly says that um, that the um, Torah is not like Torah, Torah is not like medicine. Medicine is unique and different for every patient. Mm -hmm. uh, right, which is not at all our model, our, our model of medicine, which where everyone has a prescription. The prescription is right, two pills of a standard size, right? Nobody says take 1.876 pills and call me in the morning. <laughs> it's take two pills and one or two pills and call them or use whole numbers, right? Uh, right. The doctor doesn't doesn't prepare a, a prescription using right using <laughs> he, he grinds up a certain amount. Right. Yeah, I feel like oh, this patient, there should be a little bit more of that, right? That's not the way. We, that's not the way it's functions anymore. I sort of disagree in, in yeah. some sense with uh, the Rambam on this because, like, I would say that both medicine and Torah are not okay. Are different from each person. So we could argue in that. Sense, in a sense. We could argue. I, I my argument is that the Rambam thinks that Psak is that Torah that Torah is not medicine, but Psak is. Mm -hmm. um, right, and he thinks that right. That, that's I take. I have a series where I take well, take what I call medical metaphors for 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 uh, for law in the Rambam. And you see how he plays out. There's surgery, and there's right, and there's. discussion about the rough. Yes. Um, okay. Okay. So, what he then says is that uh, I think this is true. You can check that. Um, Rav Moshe reaches conclusions that are very that often are what we would want the, that match what the post what people who care about autonomy want. Unless he gives enormous authority to the right to the um, to the patient, but he does that by claiming often by claiming that it would be dangerous to act against the patient's wishes. So the question is, what happens? So we could say, look, there's Rav Moshe, and Rav Moshe gets us to where we want often, but he does it in ways that we may not find empirically convincing. I mean, Jacob and I looked up another one of his chuvas. Yeah. he compared it to like economics. Yeah, so like a person can decide whether to invest or not invest based on what their decisions. Right, it so like a, it's not just a right. So the really big yeah. one, right? The really big one is, is is the risk is the risk benefit ratio, where emotion just thinks that it seems like emotion thinks that patients have the right to 
every person has the right to decide what risks are worth what. And that's the case, right? That's the, uh, that's the um, I guess, to use an unfortunate metaphor for the Holy Grail, right? <laughs> people who want autonomy and medical suck. And there's Ramosha saying that risk, risk reward ratios I mean, are subjective. You still have that question of to what extent that would assess the classroom, maybe. <laughs> um, you still have the question of to what extent that would play into the halachic system. Like if there are halachic factors against autonomy, how, how would that play? Right. Well, yeah. but it sounds like, it sounds like generally, right, if you take Ramosha to the extreme, we say is that if it doesn't rise to the level of pikuach nefesh one way and not the other, Right, then we're talking about risks, and you can evaluate. And, you, and, if it's, and it's because it's both ways, Rav Moshe says, you get to decide. And not mechanically, the way, um, let's say, that Rav Tikachinsky or Rav Leich would say that you have, that whatever the doctors say has a better chance of survival, that's what you pick. But you can say things like, you know what, it's worth taking an additional risk of mortality because of the, because the outcome is, mm-hmm. right, is, one that, is one that I appreciate, is one that I appreciate mm-hmm. more, right? So that's a huge shift. That's a huge shift, and I like to think Rav Moshe says that. It's a very plausible. I think it's a very plausible reading of Moshe. I think Rav Moshe is less convinced. Um, I think it's a very plausible reading of Rav Moshe, and I think that is coherent um, with Rav Moshe, uh, who I think recognizes consistently the importance of autonomy in certain spheres, but not always. Mm-hmm. Um, Rav Moshe is a very interesting figure that way. Okay. Um, Okay, so he says, right, so the second thing that Jack is and Glick raised is that the patient, the physician-patient relations evolved to favor more patient autonomy, we're on page 16, is different and the same. It's different because it's merely a sociological observation. Um, but then he points out of Tukhachinsky, that's not the way of Tukhachinsky uh, thought about it. Um, in, encountering this position, we're on the bottom of page 17, John Quiz and Glick rely on the remarkable, perhaps undervalued work of the late Benjamin Friedman. I was so glad to see this, right? I talked to it, but this book, yeah. which we should all have, right? Get one with punctuation. But, okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah, usually you, you should be able to ask the seller that first, uh, if it has punctuation in it or not. Uh, especially commas, I think commas suffered from a global repla- search, and, search and replace with blank space. Uh, but uh, this one is not, right? See, this one is a very nicely normally functionated book. Very nice typeface also. Um, but apparently you can't tell by the cover. Uh, <laughs> apparently there are covers, but they're, both covers have, I don't know. Um, there's a blue one. I think the red one is more, is more consistently has commas. Um, okay, so right, so Friedman, right, who, who, um, who died young, um, says that um, it was a fun, fundamental, uh, fundament, fundamental gap in that um, it just doesn't recognize the, um, the uncertainty of medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, and to some extent, what he's saying is, uh, you know, that, that, we now, that from a doctor's perspective, medicine works the way I think of suck. And, right, and from the patient's perspective, med- right, medicine has always worked the way most people present suck. Um, right, which you know, he went through a process that's repeatable that basically everyone will do, and everyone would come reach the same conclusion. And here is the answer. And why would we think that you have any discretion about it? Right, it's just right, it's in the book, right? And so, Friedman claims that that, and it may very well be that that was true. This is my point, he does not read that was true to doctors' experiences of themselves, the way it's true to many postkins' experiences of themselves. 
And I can argue all I want, but look, did you realize over there that you were taking, you're just playing the odds is only a 60% chance? That's not how they feel it. They feel that they, you know, that whatever they decide by the canons of halacha is true. Okay, so Friedman says that, uh, Friedman says that, that doctors now uh, understand their own subjectivity. And therefore, once, once doctors understand their own subjectivity, so then it's not at all clear that the um, that the right solu- that the right solution is um, that the right that the right solution is um, that the doctor should get to decide as opposed to the patient. The doctor is certain we could say very much, but the doctor is not certain either. So why does the doctor get that decision? Um, so he tells you on page uh, on page twenty, right? He tells you that the Rama compares physicians and doctors, and just like doctors have to function in the in the in the end in the end of in the in the face of uncertainty, so too um, right. So to, so too post game have to function in the face of uncertainty, mm-hmm. but but that doesn't. But you know, functioning is not the same thing as overriding the other person's autonomy. Mm-hmm. Functioning means that if the decision is yours, you have to be able to make it. And you can't be paralyzed because you can't because of uncertainty. But that you have to be able to make decisions in the face of uncertainty does not mean that you ought to make decisions for others. Yeah. Right. I guess like another argument I have with autonomy, it's not necessarily arguing with this source, but in mm-hmm. general, like arguing with autonomy in medicine mm-hmm. and like with arrogance also in autonomy. This actually happened to me. So um Basically, yeah, I already told most everybody except for Robert Clapper um, and like other people on Zoom. So basically, um, I used to have fatigue all the time mm-hmm. and I still have fatigue like all the time, but I used to have it more. And I always thought it's because I don't get enough sleep. Since I think I'm very smart, I'm like, yeah, like I know the reason for my symptoms. Like, like it's lack of sleep and uh, maybe not enough exercise or something like that. That's why I'm always tired. And like some of the people I know, like my brother and like some other people are like, you should probably go to a doctor about that. Like you're mm-hmm. always tired. You always feel sick. Like, and I was like, yeah, whatever. Like, I don't know. And like, there were other things too, like, not going to get into like every single detail, but yeah, I basically had like, was always tired and pretty much felt sick all the time. Um, but especially the tired. So I thought I understood because I thought like, yeah, mm-hmm. I know holistic medicine. Like I eat healthy food. I exercise. I might not get enough sleep, but I'm fine. And I didn't go to a doctor. And then by the time I went to a doctor it's basically too late, not too, not fully too late, but if I would have gone earlier, it would have been much better. Okay. And like they found something. So, and it wasn't, I mean, I still, now I feel fatigued. like then they gave me a pill for the issue of like why I had basically and so now i took a pill for that um and like i'm still a little tired but like after i took the pill like the first or second day i was like wow like i feel so much less sick and like so much less tired in like one day and like how come i had this for like two years or something maybe more than two years and i didn't do anything about this and like it was just like what that's amazing but they also found something that potentially can't be reversed and all had to do with my own like feeling that like i know why should I go to these doctors? Like I'm so smart and I know holistic okay, medicine. Okay, so we so we should so, distinguish yeah. though between not going to the doctor and having to right. obey the doctor once they tell us you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
And what? And, and yeah, and having to, yeah, there's definitely a distinction. Right, because if you don't go to the doctor, so that I, I agree with you, that's not a uh, not a smart thing to do. I would agree with that. <laughs> not that I don't do it, but <laughs> but I agree that it's not a smart thing to do. Would yeah. I would I avoid doctors? Um, yeah, no, it will. Do I really agree? Not smart. I think I ought to agree, um, and I should certainly advise other people not to. People imitate. are also scared of going to doctors. I just want to say, like, it's another lesson I want to teach people. Like, now this is my new mission in life. Don't be scared to go to doctors. Like, what? Because, like, literally, I, I didn't feel so comfortable going to doctors. Like, I mean, okay, like, but I gotta shut this up, Rita, because we, we gotta stay on topic on this one. And that, yeah. that's that's two steps, two steps okay, removed. Fine. We gotta stay on that one. You could, uh, you, know, you could catechize okay, people fine. on that. Side. That's <laughs> point. But it's like definitely my mission in life. Is Good. Because well, yeah. I often try to avoid people with that mission. Though, be careful. What? <laughs> What you try to avoid people who try to convince me to, to, to yes. <laughs> no, but like this, if no, we're not going. That was a joke or what? We'll leave it as a joke for now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So um Okay, I will have to turn it on. <laughs> <laughs> after, after, after. Yeah, you to my wife about this one. Um okay. So, um, right, so he says, right on page 22, that um, the strength of my conviction that patients deserve a chance of the truth flows less from any particular argument and more from a visceral observe aversion to all forms of paternalism, except, of course, for parenting. I have, <laughs> I have learned this aversion in good faith, I hope, from Mori Virabi Ravar and Lichtenstein. So, yeah, that's, that's certainly true. Right, that's certainly true. We just have to be, have to be frank that, um, that those of us, you know, so I gave you the I gave you the the excerpt from Lonely Man of Faith, which uh, which I love, where the Rav says that to be dignified or to have kavod is to be free to control your own environment, and therefore, if you don't have a, right, if you don't have autonomy, you're not really human. Right? You don't have the kavod. You don't have the kavod. You don't have kavod. The kavod kavod hadam, and right. And so that's if you have that really really strong pre. Right, pre pre belief, and you have you have role models who are showing you, like even in the area of Torah, that they think that generally they're making the decision for you is bedevit, and your job is to make your own decisions, so then you understand where this comes from. I think that's um, I think that's fundamentally right. So the question then is, um, do we um, do we think that this argument? about autonomy in and access to information extends right is that it seems to me that this relates closely to what we call you know and um an inviolate personality mm -hmm. yeah um that controlling controlling what people know about you is part of that right? it's part of dignity in the same way that you get to decide whether to wear clothes and how much clothes you get to wear, and we can debate right how much decision you get to decide, but how much clothes you get to wear right now that relates to other conversations. <laughs> um, I think that um, I think that I, I think the argument can extend. Now I understand the argument can extend to control of your body, right? We have to be uh, right control of right, control of everything about your sexuality, and halacha doesn't respect autonomy all the way there, right? If we say God tells you what to do or what not to do. I don't. I think that to to claim that Torah has makes no normative claims that infringe on autonomy and privacy is absurd. Mm -hmm. Right? That would be that would that would be a stage too far. I think. Uh, so, how we set boundaries 
And I think part of the conversation that we have to figure out is the combination of privacy, we have our privacy against peers and privacy against the government, privacy vis-a-vis the government. And we've talked about intimacy as a modification of privacy. Um, we acknowledge that there doesn't seem to be any informational privacy as against God, uh, or you can't stop God from knowing everything. Uh, there are some ways in which we protect God's privacy in both directions. We protect God's privacy from ours, right, from by not seeing him, mm-hmm. or we're not supposed to look. And then there are also things like where you're not supposed to expose yourself to God, uh, right, which relate to things about sexuality, uh, thinking about Torah and things like that, where we say, like, I'll sort of do this. So you could but do that. God. Pardon? But our God or about ourselves? Not doing it at base medrash, right? Not, you know, not, right, not doing it with foreign presence, right? Those are not doing those things in the presence of God. Now, you can always turn anything of the, that into virtue. I mean, I think there's a difference between respecting the space and God, respecting God's privacy. <laughs> okay, right. So, so you, you know, I think that's a fair, I would like to argue that you can conceive of it that way. But none of that, that the underlying question is granting that there is no in that there is no informational privacy against God. But if you have an expansive notion of privacy that includes autonomy, and you take the position that God has, that God explicitly registers his respect for autonomy, it's one of the fundamental things is giving human beings free will. So do we think that that also extends to certain areas where God doesn't and again, he's hired into what I claim about Ishalacha that the, right and, and the Rav that there is a that even the halacha to be halacha to be ethical has to be autonomous. And how you, and the way you do that is by giving human beings a share in the creation of the halacha they live by. So then you can get a strong bias towards saying that part of that you know that halacha itself recognizes there are certain areas where you have to be the one who decides the halacha for yourself. I have to figure out exactly how far that goes, right? How, 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 how bendable is it? There's still going to be fixed points that you can't do, but you have a bias towards looking for ways in which people get to construct, you want to call their own halakhic styles, uh, whatever, right, whatever, whatever mm-hmm. it may be. So I think that's, that, I think that is a, um, I think you could try to put that argument together. I don't think it would be a hopeless task um, to do, put it together through the model that, you know, that, Rabbi Goldberg says he got from Lichtenstein, and you know, and I, I can't say that I got to see Lichtenstein in action on that level, so that would not be. But I think you know, I get it from I think reading the Rav, not so much from the model of the students of the Rav. I think there's some students of the Rav who think this, and not others who really don't. <laughs> others who really, really, really didn't get that out of the Rav. Um, but some students of the Rav really did, and those happened to be the students that I was closer with. I mean, he's not saying that this with reference to strict halacha. Well, I don't know what strict means. I mean, he quotes the Ramban Right? Which sounds like there's halacha and things that are not halacha, but related to halacha. Yeah. So he's, he's not explicitly, he's, he, may, he may agree with this also, but he's not explicitly saying that people have autonomy in deciding what halacha to follow. Well, I think that part of the whole point of this is to what he's trying to do is to radically expand the realm of Vesita Yashrapatov into spaces that many other people would think are halacha. Yes. Right. Like, I think it would say that autonomy, it's not so much that like he would or wouldn't say that people have autonomy 
in all areas where halacha is involved with that autonomy applies to various areas to which others might try and extend halacha and mm -hmm. which don't necessarily aren't necessarily covered under like more formalistic halacha requirements. I, I don't think you'd remove them from halacha either. Right? I think that's the I think that's where the challenge comes. He doesn't think it's a totally separate category, but he thinks that there are areas of life that we can say you can can be informed by our knowledge of halacha and masora without being as like rigidly dictated as certain other things. I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, I think that we you know that we we would probably, you know need, need, might need a new language to talk about places where you decide the halacha for yourself as opposed to just places where you make decisions for yourself. Um, right, because what, what I, what I, which is what I think I'm trying to argue exists as a space, mm -hmm. uh, right, places where, in the, where you're not trying to satisfy your needs in some sense, right? You're trying to figure out what the will of God is for you. Uh, and you're doing it by, you know, and I don't think it should all be fuzzy. What if God's will is for us to satisfy our needs? Okay, so right, we can you know do that, right? Oh, oh. I'm okay with that. That's not every need, right? Every need. Like yeah, no, I think I think you know one of your needs is to figure out your your duty. I think that's a, that's that's a uh, I think that's a big part of it. Um, that's where we get into Friedman. Uh, I think people should have a need to figure out their duty. Um, but I think I think Goldberg's what Goldberg is trying to do is to I think that we can what he's trying to do is to expand is to is to drive it. See, there's more of the the foggy area around the clear center, as opposed to you know, let's say Bleich's goal very very often is to try and expand the clear center as much as possible, which is like a part of Bleich's notion that let's say Meshura Sadin is graded by every individual, but really the goal is to create. When you is to create a society where everybody does where everybody is in the same issue as I did. Just we can't always do that because everybody's on Madrego for it. But we as we raise the Madrego society, then the same issue as it becomes a chia for everybody. Uh, whereas you, you know, a different vision would say, no, the same issue as is the area which we leave for people to make. Right. So that right I happen to have a lot of sympathy for Rebaich on that one. But um, but I think that that the question whether what you're going for is clarity. And clarity meaning that you tell other, other people should be able to know what to do uh, and not have to think about what they want to do or what they think is right. They should just know what to do. Or whether you think, no, the goal is you know, to, Harry um, Wurstberger's you know, framing, the goal is just to, to have enough halacha that people will make better decisions when the, when, when the quest, when the, when the, their real life questions come up because the books can never actually cover everything in detail. So the purpose of the halacha is to train you to make the decisions you need to make. That's very consistent with Ramban. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's coherent with Ramban. Um, okay, so let's take a look at Friedman now. Um, Friedman in, um, I think the, what I wanna get out of Friedman today um, which is not you know, the, whole, the whole point of the book. What I get in today is he sets out a model of how he presents halacha with regard to a specific kind of audience. Uh, what he says is that what he's doing in this book is presenting the halacha that is most likely to be meaningful to an audience which doesn't see halacha as binding. Mm -hmm. so that's a very interesting claim. 
Uh, now, by definition, a pluralistic society is one which doesn't see halacha as binding, and this is also true in you know, in a sense. Well, let's, by definition, a society of Jews and non-Jews, <laughs> um, pretty much, right? You have Noahides around you, but right, we're, we're, right, most most sides are plural. So, what he says is that the criteria for selection is different when you're dealing with a pluralistic society than if you're dealing with a homogeneous society. So what you say the Jewish ethics are might be different in a pluralistic society than in a Jewish society. But then the question is, what are the ethics for a from doctor in a pluralistic society? I mean, he doesn't say that if he was speaking only to from people, he wouldn't necessarily do it differently. No, he doesn't say it, right? He says that it would, but it wouldn't work to do it the other way, right? And he understands why people would do it differently. And he understands that if he were asked the question, you know, he might, he might understand that the process of halacha yields different results because in a, in a orthodox environment, it might be that your primary criteria is authority, whereas in a pluralistic environment, authority is largely irrelevant. Right? What, matter, right? what matters is what can you... So I think that's a... Yeah, I think his... His physicalism example is a really great question in terms of say that, where we say that when people ask you, am I allowed to give blood? And the answer is you're allowed to give blood because Gemara says that bloodletting is, is healthy. Now that's true. And that's sort of Moshe Paskins, right? That right, Gemara says that bloodletting is healthy. Therefore, bloodletting is healthy. Okay, therefore, what's your Shiloh? Um, but that's not going to work if you explain, right? If, you, if, if somebody trying to what are the essence of bloodletting? Well, yeah, well, I think we should schedule all our donations for Tuesday and Friday because the Gemara says that on Tuesday and Friday, and you know, on Tuesday and Friday, bloodletting is 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 better than on Thursdays, right? That's like no. Right? Why would anyone pay any attention to you at all? Um, so then, one of the questions that we have to think about is to what extent, when we paskin halacha for modern Orthodox Jews. Are we paskining halacha for people who are functioning in a homogeneous Orthodox society? And to what extent are modern Orthodox Jews always conceiving of themselves for most areas of ethics uh, as functioning in a pluralistic society? I could, um, mm -hmm. Whether and you know that related to issues like Kiddush Hashem, does it relate um, to religious, you know, or to less 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 noble less noble less noble things? And what I sometimes is just practically, right? So if somebody asks you the Shiloh working for right, working for Google, right? So that's answering for what somebody should be arguing for in corporate circles as Google is the same as as arguing for what doctors should be doing in hospitals. And if you want. If you want Orthodox Judaism to be a participant in the cultural discussion, you want Orthodox Judaism to be able to contribute to ethical discussions. So it's very hard to do that if you're passing indifferently internally than you are arguing other people should do. It's very well. We in our community, right, only 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 donate blood on Tuesdays. But you, right, as your community, you should do it on Tuesdays, Thursdays, right, should do it all week long, right? That's a very that's a very hard claim to make. Um, so what I'm you know, interested in for a very long time is wondering if, if, to what extent is it legitimate to explicitly take what, do what Freeman does and just say, that's what I'm, what I'm doing is because you're asking the question in the context of functioning in a pluralistic society. So the psaac for you, 
is the psak that is right is the psak that is co that is coherent with the makara and has the most logical appeal. I mean, he's also not making some stock, but I, I understand the way you're extending. Yeah, right. And to some extent, that's what Ray Lamb did. Mm -hmm. Right. He's also not making some stock. Right? He's also not making some stock. He's also not making. He's not so right. He's so testifying in court. Right. So that's the point. That's not stock, but it's definitely right. So that right. So right. So we talk about. Um, let's we talk about what Orthodox should Jews should do with genetic information. Right? So you're making a claim about. I think you're implicitly making a claim about society. Mm -hmm. It's hard to make the argument. This is what you, you know that we, and as a society, we think X, but we're going to tell you to do Y. So maybe that's the right way to pass contrarianism. People ask you when people ask you questions that relate to um, to the way in right to, that really is that non-Jews could ask you the same question. Right, the whole society asks you the same question. To give an answer which is different is very is, is very challenging. Now we know there are areas where we haven't solved this. You know, abortion is the most is the easiest example. Mm -hmm. uh, right, where we still think that the standard suck is that there are circumstances. Many people will still in that there are abortions which are mandatory for Jews, but also for Gentiles. So you can find poskim who think that even abortion to save the life of the mother is also for Gentiles. Yeah. Hmm. Wait, Jews? Is that you can find Jews, right? Orthodox rabbis will paskin that it is usher for non-Jews to abort even to save life of the mother. I wish you'd go into the lamb just that's a separate discussion. That's <laughs> yeah, very easy. Because the Jews have a distinction between Rasikha and Shrikh Islamim. And right, and therefore right, Jewish adults at right are different than fetuses. And you can make the choice, but you can't, but but there's no Rasikha by non by non-Jewish adults. There's no difference between non-Jewish adults and children. And fetuses, right? That's the easy way to do it. Not hard. Not hard. Um, oh, so those same Jewish postings would say that for Jews, it's, it's not only is it permitted, it's like. It's a chia for Jews and also for non Jews. And then again, the whole Shaila can you have a non Jewish doctor abort you? Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. This is, these are real chubas. These are real chubas. And the, the conversation, um, among Orthodox institutions as to how to weigh in on abortion legislation was often about that. Is it more important to try and stop the non-Jews from committing all their Usher abortions or to make sure that it's still mutter for us to commit to have our mutter abortions? And so for many years, Orthodox institutions took a parochial perspective. So they fought against abortion restrictions because that was what was necessary. And then the Lava Rebbe came along and, and, and said that we have to teach the seven mitzvahs. And all of a sudden, and all of a sudden Orthodox institutions became anti-abortion. Um, not really because anything had changed on the substance. Uh -huh. Because this is at least my theory, right? But because we shifted our focus, or whether we were right, that that's one of the amazing things the Lavish Rebbe did was to believe to to, to to a significant extent that what we should be advocating for in in American society is Shem Mrs. Noah as opposed to Halakha. Um, uh -huh. And that's um, so. I think I think that the um, I think that that's part part of the question for me is you know is when we talk about privacy, genetic privacy, are we talking for, are we talking about the individual obligations of Jews? We're we talking about how we want to set up a Jewish society, or are we talking about how we want Jews to function in a non-Jewish society? In this non-Jewish society, or we actually have more ambitious and say that you know what, this is one of the areas where we should be participating in a conversation about how to set up a mixed society. Hmm. Right? So this is, this is one of my hobby horses: is that the answers could be wildly different. <laughs> Pardon? The answers could be wildly. The answers different. could be wildly different. Exactly right. The answers could be wildly different. 
the selection procedures among your right among right among your makaro right not only the way in which you make the argument but your selection procedure can be entirely different so this is one of my hobby horses is that um it was part of the taking responsibility for torah that uh that, you know that we have uh we have first real chance in history for jews to participate as equals in the construction of this of a society with non-jews um and which we have a voice but the voice but not pat we know but but it's it's um, it's a, a proportional voice, and that we should figure out like well, wow, what does it mean to be participants in not not subjects of a non-Jewish state, mm. but participants in a joint state. Um, and so yeah, so I think that that's at least something one should consider that what we should be trying to do is um, is construct what you know that we try and think about. So what way, how does what we think is halacha really relate to what we think is the right thing to do? And once you get into the state of Israel, that's even more complicated. Yes, state of Israel gets much more complicated, right? You're forming a state, you know, both with both with non-Jews and with non-from Jews, uh, right? Who you right, you know, do you have to respect their autonomy also? Uh, right, what's what's and you should be right. state. also with the state of Israel, I think like in general, like not just with the state of Israel, but with countries today, like things are getting more globalized. So there is now there's like the what United Nations and things like that. So like, and and with global economy. So for example, Israel might be reliant on America for something. America sure. might be reliant on Iraq yeah. or- And a lot of these areas countries. have been covered by international treaties. And also we have multinational yeah. corporations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, but Dina is not a good way for thinking about what multinational, what multinational corporations no. should do. If you're making a sock for a different country that has no Jews living in it. <laughs> it's then they give you influence, right? Yeah, I think multinational corporations are a fascinating are a fa- you know a fascinating thing, um, you know, as to what if they cared about halacha, leaving aside you know Usher Weiss's position that they are you know, they are halachic persons, but mm-hmm. they're not bound by anything. Right? Yeah. What do you tell multinational corporations to do? Is a, because you can't even tell them you have to obey every dina, right? What if you know? What if they find you know which will happen soon? Is what if a multinational corporation sets up as a government? And there's no reason they can't buy a, they can't buy an island somewhere. And yeah. move Google headquarters there, and declare independence. Yeah, that's what sci-fi is. Right, Some place we have Greenland, say right, they could buy Greenland. <laughs> and right, and, they have to like also come together, like many corporations. Like they're just like, okay, we want to make like a world like government. Like we want to rule the world. So why don't we just like maybe maybe the East corporation just wants to own its own island. It's not enough island. They can like have enough are. money to own an island. The big ones can. Yeah. The big ones can, can construct an island. But how can they define that as a country? Like, just, would that be it, defined? As if somebody, country? if some country sells them an island and gives them the right to declare independence, then yeah. there they are. So then, from there, they can have like they can set up whatever. Right. Then yeah. you, you can't say they're bound by Dina Malchus Adina. Right. They are the Dina Malchus. Right? Yeah, and then the Sheva Mitzvah may not come in. Like, okay, you what? still have to follow. Oh, but Rosh Hashanah says that's the point. My point is Rosh Hashanah yeah. says they don't. Uh, Aside from that, what would it mean for? They don't have to follow the show. It says that people do, but corporations don't. Oh. Huh? How does that make sense? Well, how would a corporation worship a Vedazara or a Kamikili Arayas? Right. Or another way to phrase it is now this supposed uh, to follow the Sheva Mitzvahs and anyone who steals from them, they'll murder immediately without trial. Anyone who, you know, right, they might very well. Okay, but that's that's still people behind that. How so can you to, say that that's not, so, uh, so, they don't have to follow Sheva? Well, okay, understand. that's okay. The individuals do, but the corporation doesn't. That's the. But the individual has to, how, so they're going to set up like robots to kill people? Like, how does this. We'll have to figure that out, right? That's all. That's a whole challenging question. I, usually my question is whether multinational corporations are allowed, or is it also for multinational corporations? A survey for Minachai. 
Right? Like we have this intuitive thing that they shouldn't murder people, but what about every Menachai? It's also one of the Shabbat Mitzvahs. Oh. Wait, how, like, what would be an example of that? They have a, ca they have a cafeteria. Oh. Is Google allowed to serve every Menachai in this cafeteria? Or is it usher for the corporation to make the decision to allow? Of course to... not, because it's it's Google allowed. What does that mean? So that means the CEO of Google has to decide the policy. Ah, so that's a, that I think is a very complicated thing. Whether that's the whether that's the and case. Google, by the way, I think the CEO right now is a Russian Jew. So just yes, that's put true. That in my area. There are Jews. There. They're <laughs> Jews. That is a that is a separate question. How you, you know, how Jews are handled it. But once you treat corporations independent people, it's not at all clear what the what the responsibilities of individuals are, so long as they are not being told to do something specifically usher. It's not also to prepare every minachai. Right? The whole question about right, whether the non-Jews are also bound by Lifnaiva, right? All sorts, as opposed to we have favor towards them. All sorts of fun questions you could ask. Uh, okay, but my my right, my my issue really is just that narrow question, which it, um was a very broad question. Uh, how do we on the specific issue of privacy, uh, when an Orthodox Jew asks the question, in what framework are we trying to answer it? Um, seeing that. Privacy is like one of the global issues right now. I mean, I will say there is a factor of you, there are different aspects to privacy and different implications. Mm -hmm. Like, if there's an issue of mamzerut, there, like, yes, it's something like knowing one's parentage is important for everybody, but there are specific considerations. Yeah, you could. So yep. there are. I would argue there are sometimes specific things. This is true. But you might argue that. that that should be true for, you know, that you will build what you'll uh, do it in America usually is you build in a religious exception. Yes. That applies to all religions because you think religion has a role in the society. Um, mm -hmm. So you could do that. Um, you could do that, right? You know, you could say the same way we, you know, we try and we're trying to figure out to build in specific requirements for, uh, let's, let's say, the, I think the New York law is, is you know, it's the cleverest one where it says, is a, you know, where it's, where it's really been expanded in many other places. The way that we know in the New York law that, that in order to get a civil divorce, you have to remove all barriers, civil or religious, to your spouse's remarriage. Hmm. Right? So now in practice, that basically just means Jews, Orthodox Jews, have to give a get uh, because annulments are really easy in, uh, in, in the ca in Catholic tradition now. And Muslim jurisprudence is evolving in ways where, where egoness is less likely. Um, but the law is written with neutral impact. Um, it's just right. You know, the goal is right. Civil divorce is is only effective if it actually lets the people of parties be free to remarry according to their own intuitions. But I think that's a, I, I think that privacy is not a bad is not a bad place for thinking about uh, how we want to do it. The other place that we could we could draw analogies, you know, environmentalism. Um, right? Can you imagine saying that you know Baltashkis, right? There are things that Jews are allowed to do. But we don't, right? But we think it'd be bad for non if non-Jews did the same thing. Uh, we have an ongoing issue with Puravu and you know population control, right? Where we do you know, often end up with di diametrically opposing uh, values. Where you want there to be lots more Jews, but you know, but if you're an environmentalist, you want right. So if you're an environmentalist from Jew, you right, you have Puravu against what you think is a pressing need for population control. I think that's probably outdated by like 10 or 20 years. It could be the environmentalists are not in the same state. Modern people realize that as people get educated and as the world gets more educated, the population it happens anyway. Years, and there's, <laughs> there's, there's not going to be growing population. Okay. Like, there are still like, you know, like Peter okay. Singer, like, you know. Yes. Like, right. So I'm just, I just give it as an example of ways in which you can see how we could generate, you know, other areas in which we can see that we generate very direct contradictions. Um, you can see this as a, you know, as a, Affected by the, the, you know, by the Kantian notion that whatever you see as ethical has to be universalizable, 
Right, so in Kantian ethics, the definition of ethics is you have to want everyone to do it. Uh, there are counters to that, which you know, which argue for pluralism and say that no, actually, Kantian ethics are wrong that way, and we want there to be, we want ethics to be, um, we want ethics not to homogenize the, 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 the homogenized cultures, which imposing a single ethics and everybody will homogenize cultures. So figuring out what spaces you think there's room for, there's room for it and. Particularly, you know, the, the challenge is even in the in the Kantian world, it's hard to argue that the only exception to universalism should be Jews. Right? Once you argue for Jews on the grounds of the value of particularism, right? This is the challenge with Rabbi Sachs's. Uh, well, Rabbi Sachs argues that the purpose of the message of Judaism and Avraham Avinu and all that is that God loves diversity. We are post McDowellville, but okay, you know, then you have to really argue. Then the problem with that, like, how do you avoid? Relativism, right? It's always a challenge when you get the pluralism and you avoid relativism. We don't want there to be cultures. We don't want there to be cultures where you, you know, where you, where widows have to throw themselves on funeral pyres, uh, right? Or where you expose, you know, where you expose your disabled children, or for that matter, your, your disabled parents, uh, right? Those are all right. So how we set a boundary? So we like say shavuot mitzvahs, right? Things like that. Uh, okay, but I, uh, just a comment. Can I say? Something? I think we should finish okay. here because okay. okay. we because Eliana's starting forty-five minutes. All right. All right. And we can't change it. Okay, so that, that's why I want to leave it. Tomorrow we're going to go back to um, analyzing the question of pri whether privacy is, is a defined concept and how we build a lot out of it using Rabbi Wachowski and um, and uh, and Professor Solovey and to some extent um, Rakover. That should do it. Uh, I'll send the child out after Liana's um, share. Okay, so we are done already. You can count. Oh, okay, sure. Um, my comment is. Um, just 